we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. This is Dave Debo. Today on the program, the Reverend Mark Blue is here. He's president of the Buffalo NAACP, of course, and also heads the city's Memorial Commission, looking at the possibilities for a sculpture, a park, or some sort of commemoration on Jefferson Avenue at the Topps shooting site. It is early in the process, but he'll talk about the progress so far and where things stand. But first, a Black History Month story. A tale of two artists, friends growing up in the Maston District, classmates in the late 60s at Canisius College, both would go on to make their mark as artists. Leroy Johnson is a painter with an exhibit at the Birchfield Penny right now through March 26. He's a local attorney. He's in the Buffalo Music Hall of Fame for his work as manager of his brother Rick James. Meanwhile, his childhood friend, Tarabu Batsare Kirkland, is known nationwide for his documentary, 100 Years from Mississippi, featuring his mother, who grew up here, but has roots that reach back to all sorts of civil unrest in the South. I have seen a lot of beautiful things. I mean, beautiful things. Now we're grappling with basic classes. I have seen a lot of ugly things, too. The two will be part of a panel of the Birchfield Penny this weekend talking about their work, their common themes, and their friendship. And that's where we start out, with Kirkland looking back on their time together on Buffalo's East Side. Leroy Johnson is um, a longtime friend and colleague. We both uh, grew up as kids at the Masson Avenue Boys Club when we were uh, in our early teens, and uh, we wound up at Canisius College together in 1967. Um, we were a group of less than a handful of African-American students in the entire student body. Um, so when we looked at that situation, it was interesting because I lived in that community, which was entirely African-American. Yeah. But the school within that community was almost entirely, probably 98% you know, white. Sure. So um, our immediate question was, what's wrong with this picture? Uh, so we and uh, my, myself, Leroy, and I and, and three other African-American students went into uh, Father Dembski's office, Father James Dembski, who was the president. President at the, at the time, sure. He had just started, actually, recently. And this was during the height of the black student movement in the 60s. And we went in his office unannounced, and locked the door and stayed in there for 68 hours and told them we weren't leaving until we got some demands met. And the primary demand was that we wanted more African-American students recruited and enrolled in the college. And to his credit, he listened. Mm. He actually listened. 
And we formed, uh, shortly thereafter, the African American Society at Kinesis College, which is still in existence. Um, we began to uh, personally recruit at local high schools. And from that handful of students in 1967, there were 30 in 1968, 60 in 1969. By the time we graduated, graduated, there were close to 150. So we have a long relationship yeah. together of you know activism. And, and then when and, I... And you went on to become this filmmaker. He's gone on to become a noted national artist. Internationally renowned artist. An attorney. And, oh, yeah, by the way, the manager of his brother, Rick James, who was on tour with him for a while. That is correct. That is correct. So, you know, there's just a lot of history there. And so when when his uh, exhibition was being scheduled, and they were talking about a series of events, it was like, wow, it's a natural collaboration to bring the film in as part of the exhibition and reflect uh, the Black Lives Matter component of the film. So it was, it's just, it was a beautiful uh, collaboration. I'm really happy that it happened. To Robbo Kirkland talking about his friend, the artist Leroy Johnson. The two of them are together this weekend at the Birchfield Penny this Saturday at 2 for a panel discussion. It will look at Johnson's art in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement, and it will also be a screening of Kirkland's documentary, 100 Years from Mississippi, and that is a tale in itself. The race ride. People being buried to death, Lord help us. A tale told by his 111-year-old mother, Mamie Kirkland of Buffalo. I was seven years old. We had to leave Mississippi because they was going to lynch my father. The documentary begins in Ellisville, Mississippi. His mom was seven years old in 1915, when her father came home and said they had to leave because a lynch mob was after him and his friend, John Hartfield. And she was never able to actually discern what the actual story was behind that, but the threat was real and evident. And his father, her father, and his friend fled uh, immediately around midnight uh, back in 1915. And after that, eventually. And then after that, um, later that morning, um, her mother packed up the five kids. They put everything in the two little suitcases that they owned, and they got on a train and fled Ellisville, Mississippi, to East St. Louis, Illinois. And how long were they there? They were in East St. Louis, Illinois, for about two and a half years. Uh, After they got to East St. Louis, Illinois in 1915, two years later, Uh, the infamous East St. Louis race riots broke out. Um, Hundreds of African-Americans were killed. Uh, People were uh, uh, sailing across the uh, St. Louis River on rafts trying to get away from the violence uh, and escape the uh, the murders. And she was a personal witness to that uh, racial terrorism. And this is where, to my mind, the story becomes really interesting. You are a filmmaker. You went back there to Mississippi with her after 100 years. Uh, Literally, it was 100 years later. We went back to Mississippi in 2015. And I had been hearing this story, Dave, for my entire life as a kid. Uh, Not all of the time, but Mm -hmm. every once in a while, the story would pop up at the dinner table. And it was one of those stories that you couldn't escape because it was so horrific. Um, as a kid, I was thinking, how could anybody do something like this? 
Well, um, as the story goes, her father and his friend left Mississippi uh, under the cover of darkness. Um, her father's friend, John Hartfield, came back to Mississippi four years later in 1919. 1919 is a year of what um, they call the Red Summer. This was a year of uh, just tremendous uh, violence across America against African Americans. There were something like hundreds of lynchings from cities all over the United States. Um, John Harfield made the tragic decision to go back to Ellisville, mm -hmm. Mississippi. Um, he was hunted in the woods for over a week, um, finally caught. Uh, he was mortally shot, kept alive in a doctor's office overnight so he could be publicly lynched the next day. Wow. Uh, the newspapers printed the story, John Hartfield to be lynched at 5 o'clock in Ellisville today on the front page of the Mississippi Daily News. And this is where the intersection of fact and folklore began to happen for right. me. Because in 2015, I discovered a report by the Equal Justice Initiative out of Montgomery, Alabama, outstanding uh, legal organization. And they published a report called Lynching in America. So a colleague of mine had emailed me the report, and I'm thumbing through the report casually. And on page 16, there was a front page article about in, John Hartfield. About John Hartfield with that headline of the newspaper. And I was in shock. Um, and in dramatic storytelling, they have a thing called the inciting incident. It's yeah. where the, the, the main character uh, is propelled. The event that propels the main character or characters on a journey that will occupy them for throughout the narrative. Right, right. For me, and this film project, that very much was the inciting incident because I realized this is not only a story, it's a real story, and there were 10,000 people who showed up to witness this lynching because they advertised it like it was a picnic and invited people to come. And so 100 years after she fled... You went back there with your mother because she is a witness to a whole lot of history here. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't a casual trip, believe me. I bet not. I, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, literally had been broaching the subject with her for years. And um, when I would um, ask the question, uh, was she interested in going back to Mississippi, the response was always dramatic and emphatic. And Im immediate, probably. No. And it went something like this. Hell no. I don't even want to see Mississippi on a map. And it was funny, but it was very real. Yeah. And the more I asked and the more I got that response, the more I began to realize how much trauma was buried in that response. And, um, and I began to approach it a little bit differently when I asked her. You know, we know a lot more about trauma today than we did 100 years ago. Uh, refugee communities, for instance, when they come to America, we now understand we have to deal with their uh, a psychic burden, um, their memory burden. Um, there was none of that happening for African Americans who were fleeing racial terrorism in the Deep South in the early 20th century. So um, I realized that, you know, this was a big, big decision for her uh, to decide to go back. But here's what happened. 
Um, when we began to explore the subject, um, and we were approached by the Equal Justice Initiative because they said to us, you know, she is the oldest lynching survivor that we have ever heard of, and we would like to talk to her. Um, it gave me pause as a filmmaker, but I think it also gave her pause because she began to realize that her story was part of this larger narrative. It was a personal burden, personal trauma, but it was a part of a larger narrative. And obviously sometimes talking about trauma can be helpful. Absolutely. So you, you, uh, I, I, I still am trying to, to visualize it. You and your 100-year-old mother went back to Mississippi. Uh, she was 107 at the time. Oh. She was 107 at the time. And it was literally 100 years, 100 years since she had left in 1915. So we made the tri trip back to Mississippi. And, uh, of course, she had a lot of trepidation about it because she didn't know what to expect. Right. But um, in, in, in many ways, it was tremendously healing uh, for her to be able to go back and to bear witness uh, to that history um, and to recognize that she was an authentic survivor and she was telling an authentic survivor's story and it was important for her to share that story. As a filmmaker, you are obviously in the business of telling stories. Is the arc of her story a redemptive one? Um, what What is... What is the end result other than her reliving memories and sharing them for the world? What is the end result of her pilgrimage? Well, you know, I think it is, um, it has a lot to do with forgiveness and compassion. Uh, she was a, an extremely spiritual person, um, an extremely loving person. Um, and I think as, as much trauma as she went through, because it was in addition to leaving Mississippi, fearing that her father and perhaps the family would be lynched, it was witness to the violence in East St. Louis, Illinois, where hundreds of African Americans were killed. Personal witness watching that. Um, and then two years later, they moved to uh, Canton, Ohio, um, in living in an all-white neighborhood, and they were visited by the Ku Klux Klan. And she vividly remembers mm. everyone hiding under the bed while they burned the cross on their lawn. And there were German neighbors who lived next door who had vowed to protect him. And they came armed and, you know, repelled right. the Klan members from actually burning the house down. So it was a series of, you know, memories and, and, and traumas from, you know, acts of racial terrorism and racial violence. And that seems to me to be a story that needs to be told because I'm guessing here, fill, fill in the blanks for me. Sure. I'm guessing here that while America knows there was violence in the South, this kind of visceral depiction, this kind of reality told by a real survivor is something we probably have not experienced the same way she obviously did. Yeah, and I think that's where the power of the story resides because here's this little old lady. She's 107 years old, and she's talking about this history. And fortunately, her memory was as sharp at 107 as it was when she was a child. She remembered all of the details vividly, so she was able to share that. But what she was also able to impart was this level of uh, love and, and, and compassion. So it, it, is a, it is a redemptive story in, in that sense, and I think it, it also talks about um, you know, truth and reconciliation. 
Um, you know, when people talk about some of these issues, they think sometimes that we can jump over history and get to reconciliation without dealing with truth. But you can't have reconciliation until you have truth. And you have to confront it. Right, and you have to confront it. And so in her own personal way, this was her personal journey to confront that history and to become a, a voice of, you know, this is what we can do better to get to the other side of this. Did the telling of the story ultimately help her? I believe so. I absolutely believe so. Um, in a number of ways. I think it helped her. Um, um, here's the thing. Um, she was born in 1908. Mm. So you've got Theodore Roosevelt. You've got the First World War. You've got the racial violence of 1919, the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. You've got the Great Depression, the stock market crash, World War II, the atomic bomb. You know, there's just the civil rights movement. There's so, so much that she has lived through. And I, um, I think part of it for her was that she got to see the retrospective of her entire life. And part of it for us was, how do we tell 100 years' worth of history in an hour documentary? Is it something where the telling of the story um, is, I'm, I'm going to be blunt in the way I phrase it, instructive to white people? I believe so. I believe so. How? Well, because there's a lot of people that didn't even know these events happened. Um, we've screened in audiences in, in Miami, in Nashville, Washington, D.C., New York City, Indianapolis, Houston, Dallas, all through the South, Oklahoma State last week. And um, one of the things that is um, kind of a, a recurring refrain we hear is that I never knew about this. Mm -hmm. You know, the history that we're taught in schools is selective. Uh I would say that I was taught, sure, that there was violence in the Deep South. Yes. Um, but the individual stories within that. Yes. The race riots in East St. Louis. Yes. Uh, the lynching in Ellisville, Mississippi. Yes. Those kind of vivid depictions yes. are completely different than the broad brush that says, oh, yes, there was violence against African Americans. I received a phone call, Dave, from a, a minister, a, a white Baptist minister in Ellisville, Mississippi. He says, hello, Mr. Kirkland. Um, I'm a minister in Ellisville, and I just heard about this story. And I have lived in Ellisville my entire life, and I knew nothing about this. And we need to do something about this. We need to do something. The people of this city need to do something about this. One year later, I got another call from a woman who said, we saw your film, and we want to install a memorial for John Hartfield, which happened this past June, in June, mm. uh, Juneteenth celebration. They got the city council and the county to install this marker in memory of John Hartfield. If nothing else, it uh, reminds the people of that community that this is something that they should never revisit again. So I think in that sense, it's really instructive and really powerful. As you've screened this across the country, what have you learned? Tell me about some of those experiences that you've had with people who view it for the first time. 
Well, um, one of the responses that I mentioned before is that I knew nothing about this. The other is, wow, um, what do we do now? How do do we deal with this? Um, And some of those places where we have screened the film have now passed anti-history legislation that makes it impossible to teach or even talk about some of this racial history. In certain spots spots of the country right now, critical race theory is not allowed in schools. That is correct. That is correct. And so um, when we screened in Oklahoma, the professor said, yeah, well, this, is, this is a very red state. And so this discussion is delicate in this state because people don't want to talk about it. But I want to screen this film anyway to my students because I think it's important for them to know. So, you know, the idea that if we teach a a truer history of our country, then our children will grow up not loving their country, for me, is, is a ridiculous notion. I think, in fact, if we teach a truer history of our country, our children will wanna grow up and do something about it to redress those wrongs. So the, the thinking is completely illogical to me. Uh, so I hear students all over the country saying, well, I'm so glad you came and talked to us about this. I learned so much that I didn't know. I have a completely different understanding of why this is so important for us to talk about. Tarabo Kirkland is here, a Buffalo-born filmmaker, director of 100 Years from Mississippi. There's a screening tonight of that documentary at Canisius College, free to the public, 6 o'clock, in the Regis Room at the Winter Center on campus. He's also part of a panel discussion this Saturday at the Birchfield Penny Art Center with childhood friend and artist Leroy Johnson. They'll look at the intersection between the civil rights themes in his documentary and the Black Lives Matter connection to Johnson's work. And as you know, uh, Buffalo was um, home of a a serious uh, racial violent incident. And... As we reflected on it, my mother lived blocks from the top store. It was the top store that I would go shop for her when I came back in town. Mm-hmm. When she was moving around the city, it was the store that she went to shop um, herself. Um, and so when that event happened, I was on the West Coast, obviously, mm-hmm. and uh, I was just waiting for the phone calls to happen, dreading for that first call. First call came from one of my sisters who lives only blocks away, and she said that her friend's nephew was in the store shopping, and he didn't make it out. And then my other sister called, and she says, you know, I used to joke with the security guard all of the time. He obviously didn't make it out as well. And as I began to reflect on that, Dave, that one of the things that came up to me was that when she left Mississippi in 1915, it was the same year that uh, D.W. Griffith released his film, Birth of a Nation. Mm a film which was um, celebrated. He was even feted at the White House by yeah. Woodrow Wilson. Uh, the, the story was a story that really glorified the Ku Klux Klan and uh, vilified black people as these you know, deranged uh, sexual uh, predators. predators. Yeah, It became the, the racist bullhorn that um, uh, fueled the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. And then what happened? 1917 was the East St. Louis race riots. 1919 was a 
severe violence of the Red Summer, 1921, was the Tulsa massacres. Um, so there was a correlation to that. And so um, my uh, 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 analogy was that the, the, what was written on the barrel of the gun by Peyton Gendron mm-hmm. was the same metaphor. It was the same racist bullhorn. And so we have a relationship. It was 100 years ago, but it's not really yesterday. It's today. Past is prologue. Correct. Connect that to Leroy's art. So he's um, he's an incredible artist that has, um, he calls his work electric primitive. But there's all of these images that are ancestral, they're African, um, they're representative of um, really strong, powerful identity symbols, and it's also political um, and reinforces some of the... Um, just just important, you know, movements of his life, really. One of them is as an activist um, and, you know, seeing the, the resurgence of, you know, black, you know, political voice within the Black Lives Matter movement. And he developed works of art. He's extremely prodigious, mm. extremely prodigious art. When you go see the exhibit, you'll see it's just a, a magnificent um, spread of, of work over, over the years that, um, you know, talks about uh, black lives and, 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 and reaffirming um, this, this notion that there is um, a planet that we all live on. There's, you know, there's, a, there's a book called Chaos that was written by Isabel Wilkerson. Actually, she wrote two books. Uh, the first one was called The Warmth of Other Suns, which is a beautiful a retrospective of three individuals who migrated from the South during the Great Migration. It's really my mother's story. She could have been okay. one of the characters in the book. Um, and then she recently released a book called Cass about the American racial system. In the introduction, she has a, a metaphor. She talks about living in an old house and how they have this forensic, these have these forensic, um, uh, 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 scientists who can go in and, you know, look beyond the, 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 the ceiling and see the studs and r- see where the cracks in the structure are, where the, where the leaks have happened, where the water has come in. I get the metaphor the already, yeah. Um, and, 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 and it relates to the fact that we are all living in this old house. And this old house has structural problems. So we can say personally, well, I wasn't here when slavery happened. My parents didn't have anything to do with it. That had nothing to do with me. But the reality is we all live in this old house. And if we don't take care of this old house, then those things that we can't see beyond the walls will begin to affect us structurally. It could collapse. So we all have a responsibility to that. So that's the tie-in for me. At the time of her death, Mamie Kirkland was Buffalo's oldest citizen at 111 years old. The documentary is a way of remembering her struggles in ways that aren't always commemorated in America. Germany, for instance. You know, you can't, you can't walk very far around Germany without seeing some remembrance to the Holocaust. You know, it, it's, it's constantly a reminder there that this is a history that we should not revisit. Of course, it's not perfect, but when you look at 
racial history in this country, it's people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to revisit that. And that goes back to the point I was mentioning earlier, that you can't re- get to reconciliation until you have truth. You right. can't get the truth until you have dialogue about it. So that's the tie-in. We do a lot of things great in America. We do success great, we do victory great, but we don't do shame great. We don't own up to the things about which we should be shameful. And I think that leaves us vulnerable to replicating those things. To Rabu Kirkland, his documentary, 100 Years from Mississippi, will have a screening tonight at 6 in the Regis Room of the Winter Student Center at Canisius College. He's also part of a panel discussion this Saturday at 2 at the Birchfield Penny Art Center. His mother, Mamie Kirkland, died in Buffalo in December 2019 at 111 years old. Did you ever have any anger towards white people? Never. What good would that do me? You're a person and I'm a person. I left Mississippi 100 years ago. I left there a frightened little girl. But you know what? I'm not frightened anymore. Stay with us. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Check out the Our Town series produced by WNED PBS, but captured by community members on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel. Ellicottville is a town of variety, not only in what they have to offer, but the people. The Burlington community is uh, becoming increasingly multicultural, and the library is reflecting that. The parks and playgrounds have been what makes the town of Tonawanda a great place to grow up. The series began in 2003, but it's making its debut on YouTube now. Although some of the businesses and people may have changed over the years, the spirit of these wonderful towns remain the same. We just didn't realize what we had in our own backyard. We need the next generation to protect it and carry on. Learn about Jamestown, Burlington, Wellen, East Aurora, and more than a dozen other beautiful communities in our region by watching the Our Town series now on YouTube. I, w- I would live there. <laughs> this is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And thanks for sticking with us once again. This is Dave Debo. For this next segment, I'd like to take you back three months, October 21st of 22, state and local officials announcing the establishment of the May 14th Memorial Commission in response, obviously, to the mass shooting at the Tops on Jefferson Avenue. The announcement began with Governor Kathy Hochul. We want to do something where people remember, a place to come and reflect, a place to honor, and a place to say never again. Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown. Governor, I want to thank you for your resolute focus on protecting our community and being a voice of reason for our entire nation. Today, we are announcing details regarding the 514 Memorial Commission. 
The purpose of the 514 Memorial Commission will be to develop and advise on the execution of a plan to erect a physical monument in East Buffalo to memorialize the lives of the 10 individuals whose lives were senselessly taken in this racially motivated mass shooting. The state and the city, after conversations with partners in government and the private sector, will secure financial contributions to construct a fitting memorial. The 514 Memorial Commission will consist of members appointed by Governor Hochul and myself. Today we are pleased to announce that Reverend Mark E. Blue has agreed to serve as chair of the commission. And the Reverend Mark Blue is with us this morning. Reverend Mark Blue, president of the NAACP chapter in Buffalo, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell me about the commission process. I'm guessing it hasn't met yet because there are a lot of things you probably have to do. There are a lot of moving pieces. And one of the things that has to happen is individuals have to be approved to serve on the commission. Uh, That's from the governor and from the mayor. And we are in the final process of getting all of those pieces together and individuals because it's important that we do this right. And it's going to take a little time to get it done, but... uh, we have to make sure that we are very inclusive and that the, uh, the individuals and the opportunity to have financing is available as well. So step one is maybe financing. Step two would be a site. Step three, design. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, uh, but step one would be community. Okay. We need community involvement. Uh, this process will not be done void of the community. So it's very important that the community plays a role in this, and we will have dates soon to which we can have open forums with the community. I imagine as soon as your name was announced, people were knocking on your door oh. saying, hey, Reverend, I've got an idea. Um, the, the community, be it the, the area around the east side or more broadly all of Buffalo, I think they all probably have an idea of what they want here. And that's good. That's good because their input will help drive uh, a lot of the decisions that we're going to be making. Uh, also, part of that commission will be uh, the families. Uh, that have been that have suffered uh, through the trauma, and, and let me say that this trauma that we have experienced, this racial divide, this uh, individual who came and disrupted our community, uh, it's going to take some time for for that to heal. So this isn't a quick process. Uh, we will take time to make sure we do it right because we only have one time to do it right, and that's what we want to do. And as a result of that, as a result of the need for healing it may not necessarily end up on the top site because for some people, that location is still tough. It's trauma. Again, uh, reliving it over and over again. Uh, Individuals, uh, families that have been affected still have not come to that site, come to tops, and they're not going to. And that's understandable uh, because of what has uh, taken place in in their family. And it's it's tough, uh, even driving by it. It, it, it the reflections of what has has transpired still plays on the community and especially uh, the individuals that lost loved ones. I don't want to say they're competing interests, but you have to kind of synthesize two different concepts here: the idea of memorializing the victims and the idea of being reflective. In her remarks, Governor Hochul said 
that this has to express the message of never again. She then went on to talk a little bit about gun control and all the other societal issues. That's a balancing act because I imagine you don't want just a tombstone with a list of 10 people on it. No, we don't. I, I want it to be a a memorial uh, that will not only reflect the individual lives that were lost and the trauma that was there, but one that would also promote healing. And it's very important that we bring more healing to the community, uh, not just a picture and reflection, but now I want it to be a working memorial, one that's going to be progressive and saying this has happened. And now because of this, these are things that we're going to do to help this. So that never again statement uh, can be a permanent statement. Does that mean it becomes something other than just a piece of statuary or a memorial location? What I'm asking, I guess, is if it's going to carry on in perpetuity, is it a center with programs? Is it a museum? Or is it just some sort of site to commemorate? Well, uh, that's a good question. And uh, that will be part of part of what maybe the community will have input in as well. Um, we don't want to pigeonhole ourselves but we want to make sure that what we do uh, will be lasting and that the community will say, okay, I I get it. I appreciate this. And they will also use it as a time of reflection, a time of healing, uh, a time of uh, alleviating all of the, some of the community woes that we're facing right now. So it, it, it can be all of that, but it's going to take form and shape based on what the community uh, input is and also what we can afford. I'm reminded of the uh, Supreme Court justices that go before Congress and talk about uh, their their desire to be on the court. And people ask them specific questions and they say, I can't prejudge anything. Uh, you're probably in the same situation. Absolutely. But I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> no problem. No problem at all. Uh, headed into this process, what do you specifically want with, uh, without um, excluding the community, without uh, prejudging anything? I, I want this monument, uh, this memorial, uh, this piece of artwork, uh, to be all-encompassing to where it does bring a reflection, but it also brings, as I said, a healing to the community. I I want people to come and see uh, this piece of of artwork as an area where they can even bring uh, their families to, uh, a site to where we can just uh, look at and see what we can do next. Uh, a reflection of what has happened in the past and an opportunity to build on our future. So we also need to curb uh, the racism that's in here. So that will be a piece of it as well. Uh, so our children will know their past. There's a saying, if you forget your past, you can, you're condemned to repeat it. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that we use this as stepping stones to better our society, to better uh, the East Side, to better all of Buffalo. So I I see that as part of being the vision and it's just taking shape when everybody comes together. But I do see that as what I would like to see uh, as this memorial continues to go forward. Take me through the process. Step one is you said hearings are about to occur where you get community input. Step two, I imagine, is once you have a bit of a concept, then you have to raise money according to the size of that concept. Right. Not just, uh, we also need an architect which will help us in knowing after we compiled information uh, from the community and from the, uh, from the commission, uh, an architect will, will also be there to help us take shape 
in form of what this needs to be. Uh, and we'll be continuing to raise money uh, based on 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 what it, the concept is. So uh, once we raise the money, uh, then we have to also have to get a site. Now, what the site is has not been selected, but we do need a site, and we also know the need to know the parameters of the site so the architect can have that in in the concept of what we come together to present to the architect. So uh, we're we have uh, interviews, we have uh, open forum. Uh, we'll sit down at the commission and we'll go through that, and we'll look at an architect, look at a site, and it could be site than architect, but one or the other, yeah. but we also need the finances to make sure that it happens. Any idea how much that effort's going to cost? No. To be honest, no. We don't know. And and I would I would be mature, premature to, to put a figure on that. Uh, but we do know that the governor and Governor Hochul and Mayor Brown have both committed to be a part of the process and uh, to raising the needed funds uh, to be to do the work. So without any firm commitment of dollars yet, we don't know amounts, but we can at least envision a pot of money from the city, a pot of money from the state, and then a, a variety of contributions from the community. From community and business, yes. Okay. Yes, because there are some individuals and some businesses uh, that are waiting to contribute. Um, and they've been asking me, and, and we... We're finalizing that step. We're going to be finalizing that step so I can go back to them and let them know uh, where they can make their contribution. Are there any fears that the corporate donations could influence the project? No. No, there, there aren't. And I, as, as the head of the commission, I will do my best to make sure that does not happen because we need to look at what's going to help our community and what's going to be a lasting effect on our community. And I don't believe that corporate contributions will play that type of role. I believe they're going to be giving from the kindness of their heart to do what is needed and to do what's right. Mm. Now, this is an opportunity uh, not to play uh, political games. It's an opportunity not to say I've given the most. It's an opportunity for everyone to do what's right. Community hearings, fundraising, site acquisition or location, and then design. How long of a process is this? When when would you ideally, knowing that everything slides, when would you ideally want to see shovels in the ground? Uh, if, if I had a magic wand, it would have been tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't. And we have to let the process take care of itself. Um, and I would not, I would be remiss in giving some type of guarantees because we need to know exactly what we're dealing with. And, and I, want, I don't want to give any unrealistic expectations uh, because that would be wrong as well. And people will be looking at this date and saying, you said, you said, you said. Yeah, yeah. But we need to take our time and do this right. We only have one time to do it right. And, and, and with the funds that will be generated, we want to make sure that we're good stewards over what we have been entrusted to do. Is there anything you are worried about in the process, something that you think, could happen and that you want to make sure absolutely doesn't happen? Well, that's why you take your time to get it done. And you um, allow all of the pieces and all of the individuals uh, to be a part of the process. Uh, my fear is that uh, we haven't heard everyone, mm -hmm. and especially from the families, especially from the community. 
we want to make sure that we that we hear. Uh, I, I want to say I hear you. And from this, this is a concept of what we heard. And from the concept of what we heard, this is what we've envisioned and what you've been a part of envisioning to make this memorial be exactly what we need it to be, uh, one that will be healing, one that will be reflective, and one that will be aggressive to help us never forget what has happened in the past, and let's do something so the past does not happen in our future. And if the research hasn't started, this might be a premature question, but if you looked at other cities uh, that have had similar incidents? Well, other, other cities that have had similar incidents, uh, some people have had some problems and I've I read up on it, and I've listened to some of the interviews, and we want to make sure that we don't have some of those same problems. Like what? What what has happened there that you want to make sure doesn't happen here? Well, one of the one of the things that has happened is that um, it, this is not a money making venture. Uh, we want to make sure our community is being supported, our community is being resourced, but it, it's not a money making venture. Some of them have museums, um, in which again, finances are continuing to be needed. And uh, we don't want that. I personally want to make sure that this is taken care of and that we do have the finances to maintain it in perpetuity. So it, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no problem with that. We want to make sure that we're doing everything right and that finances will be the upkeep on, on upkeep this uh, piece so we don't have any type of lows in it. So th- there are... You know, we don't want individuals to to use this as an opportunity, um, as a financial gain opportunity. We want to make sure that that we do this right and that we uh, have individuals who are going to be taking care of this and not using it for for profit. It's interesting you mentioned that too. There there's a groundswell. Uh, there's there's some organizing right now to bring an African American history museum to the east side. You're saying that's a separate effort. That's totally separate. Okay. This is totally separate. Um, and we have to keep it that way. Yeah. Because I, I do know uh, Clifford Bell, who has been a, a champion uh, in, in the efforts of making sure we preserve our African-American history. But we have to make sure that we do not convolute and that we do not commingle this. So that's a totally separate uh, incident, totally separate project. And we, we will not commingle that. All right. Before we take a break, uh, one one last question, which is kind of related to all of this. This is the first day of Black History Month. What does that mean to you, sir? It means that we have an opportunity to celebrate our history. It means that we have an opportunity to reflect on our past. But it also means that we still have uh, a great way to go. Uh, with the unrest that has been happening, especially in police violence, uh, police uh, yeah. <laughs> abuse uh, with Tyree Nichols. And we can talk about that. A little That's bit where more. we're going to go after the break. Uh, but it's, it's something that we, we can reflect on. We've we have not arrived. Uh, we're being noticed. Uh, we are now being seen. Uh, but we have not arrived uh, to a point of equitable distribution of wealth and of employment. And history can play a role there. Celebrating the history contributes to racial pride, uh, creates role models, and kind of pushes pushes the, 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 the education out to both those who don't see role models and to, quite frankly, white people who need to understand more. But we also see where there's still a great divide. 
we also see where there's not equitable distribution. I I don't want equal because when you have equal, we can all stand and try to look over the fence and all have the same box. But because I'm a little shorter, I still won't be able to see over the fence. So we want equitable equitable distribution uh, of not only wealth, but of materials, of fairness, uh, so we all can have and be on an even playing field. Reverend Mark Blue is here. He's the head of the commission looking at the possibility of some sort of memorial to the victims of 514. He's also president of the Buffalo chapter of the NAACP. When we return, we're going to dig into Memphis and Tyree Nichols. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. WNED Classical has been conducting interviews of their own on YouTube with the classical music community. Have you ever wondered what goes into the performances you hear on WNED Classical? Head on over to our Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube page to see the collection of interviews that we've orchestrated. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. Watch the WNED PBS original production, The Adirondacks. We've come closer here to a, a working balance between the natural world and the human world than just about any place on Earth. The Adirondacks, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. Looking for something great to watch on TV tonight? Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to find out what's on WNED PBS. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo with the Reverend Mark Blue, president of the Buffalo chapter of the NAACP, and a man who probably was close to tears on Friday. Absolutely. When they released the video of Tyree Nichols. What was your reaction? I was appalled by the whole thing, and um, there were times I I looked away um, from the video. And it made me angry. It, It made me angry for two reasons. First... Uh, when they when I first heard of the incident, I thought, okay, here we go again, you know, white officers doing this. But then I found out that it wasn't white officers. It was African-American officers. Um, and I also looked at the way in which justice or the pursuit of justice was taking place. Prior to any of this, we, we look and we see that Uh, White officers were still on desk duty, still getting administrative leave. But in this case, they they quickly and I applaud them for quickly dealing with this issue. And one of the things that I want to to say is that if this is going to be the blueprint, then it should be uh, a standard blueprint that everyone will uh, will make sure that their law enforcement and that this action is swift all across the board. Again, and I, I admire uh, Tyree Nichols' mom, and she said that uh, they made it rough on the entire black community when you have now black on black doing this versus white on black. 
But let me also state that any type of police brutality is wrong, no matter who does it. And that's what we're facing. Now, they thought they can cover it up by their conversations afterward, but they allowed this by Tyree to to be brutalized, and they did not do anything about it by giving him or administering medical aid to him at all. They had a total disregard of life, and that's wrong on any issue in any case. Just yesterday, there were more charges than the initial five, and EMT is now involved. Watching the video, there are more officers there than the initial five that were fired. Absolutely. Even some firefighters are being charged with this as well. And the initial officer, who was a white officer, who who said he wished that when they catch him, they stomp his, uh, and I'll use this, they stomp his ass. That's what he, that's what he said. And, and when we look at all of this and the vulgarity, these weren't, these were bullies. These were, this was a gang uh, that did this. They, they dehumanized him on, on every level. And, and, and I, I know more investigation will come, but I, I get so angry at even dealing with this that it was totally uncalled for, totally unprofessional. I'm, I know they weren't taught this in the police academy. Well, if, if they weren't taught it, and if training is not necessarily part of the issue, does the scope of this and the involvement of black officers speak to not so much training, but a mindset, perhaps, that law enforcement, EMTs, and others have? Well, it's the mindset of law enforcement whether black or white, this is the culture that they've developed. And that needs to stop. That paradigm needs to shift. They, the police, have a culture. Uh, Bad policing, let me say this, bad police officers, uh, they continue to perpetuate this type of culture. There are a lot of good police officers on the force and we need to get rid of the bad police officers who are perpetuating this, who are continuing to do this, whether black or white, whatever their ethnicity, they need to be removed. We have some very good police officers. It's the bad police officers that make the good police officers look bad. Earlier this week, we had on Miles Gresham from the Partnership for the Public Good. He advocates for more firings uh, to be more easily allowed. Specifically in the city of Buffalo, he says that when discipline records are revealed, you find officers that could be fired and aren't fired. Is there a need nationwide to root out bad cops? And I guess what I'm specifically asking is whether that situation exists here. Would you agree with Miles? I agree that we need to be swift, more swift in action. Uh, to make sure that we remove bad police officers. Um, And we need to make sure uh, that the process is done in a fair way. We now can look at police officers' history, and if there is indiscretion or if there is repeated uh, abuse and neglect of these officers, they need to be removed. I mean, one of the things about their history is that it continues. And if it continues, then we need to do something about it, whether uh, it's it's more better training, whatever, whatever the course of action is. Uh, 
that our law enforcement needs to be progressive in making sure it root outs the bad police officers that are continuing uh, to be on our streets, uh, giving a license to, to brutalize people. We don't need that at all. So we need to make sure that bad police officers are removed. Some of the things that Memphis is considering or have already done are things that sprang to the forefront in Buffalo after Black Lives Matter was when then Governor Cuomo said, let's come up in every municipality with a police reform plan. Memphis disbanded their Scorpion unit. Buffalo, as part of the plan earlier, got rid of the strike force, a force targeting a specific neighborhood. Memphis is looking at a duty-to-intervene law. Buffalo, after BLM, had Carriel's law. And then the other thing they're also looking at is, uh, in a general way, changing up some of the diversity, some of the training. Um, Something, again, Memphis is now looking at something that Buffalo already did. Are we ahead of the curve, or are those things that were done symbolic? I want to say, fortunately, we're, we're ahead of the curve. But things had to happen in order for that to to take place. Um, I, regrettably, those things happened. And because of that, uh, we became proactive. Uh, we need to be more proactive instead of reactive um, in, in what we do uh, in society. But uh, our Buffalo has set a pattern, set a standard, and I think that standard... Uh, is good to be replicated in all other municipalities. Any progress, you say, is good progress. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Now, let's go back. Uh, when we were talking about the Memorial Commission, you said, hey, if I had a magic wand, I'm giving you one now for the police discussion. Wave the magic wand. What happens? All bad police officers are removed. All bad police officers are removed. And we, have, we need law and order. Uh, we need good policing. And if I had a magic wand, um, we will make sure that we have officers who are not just caring, but officers who are law-abiding, and that our citizens are respective and law-abiding as well. Final question. If officers have bad attitudes, to what degree is that reflective of society at large? If an officer has a bad attitude, how does it reflect society? Yeah, if the pool they're drawing from is... I'm not putting words in your mouth, but if the pool they're drawing from is inherently racist, if there's systemic racism out there, how do you make sure the cops that you're hiring don't reflect that? That's a good question. Um, We need to make sure that we need more training. We need more training uh, and more training. We have to find the root cause of why. Um, We have to make sure that it that their bias does not come into uh, their occupation. So we, we have to do some better vetting. We have to do better vetting. If we're finding a pool of, of bad racist officers on this side, then we need to limit going to that side. Uh, we need to make sure that our officers are will treat people with decency and respect. All right, Reverend Mark Blue, thanks for being here. Reverend Blue is the president of the NAACP Buffalo chapter. He's also the head of the Memorial Commission, looking at some sort of structure, artwork, something to commemorate the top shooting on the east side. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo. 
W-O-L-N-O-L-E-N, and W-U-B-J Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.